Let us pray. Father God, <clears throat> maker of heaven and earth, creator of all things and ruler of all, you are the king of kings, Lord of lords, and we trust you this morning. Lord, we ask you that your word would go forth through this proclamation, Lord, and let it set, set deep within our hearts the wonder and the majesty of, our incarn of your incarnation, Lord, and our redemption. For this is what we celebrate. For if we have that, we don't have that, we have nothing. And Lord, we are eternally grateful for our salvation. Pray, Lord God, that you would quicken me to preach your word correctly and humbly, Lord. We give you honor and praise. And we ask these things in the name of of your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who died upon the cross for our sins and ascended to heaven as our mediator. Amen. little background on, um, on this sermon. Um, several years ago, I... Uh, I did a, a re-preach of a historical sermon. I was listening to a podcast and got inspired by a brother of ours um, in the Lord that had made mention of this idea of needing to find sermons of historical significance and just that were well-preached and that needed to get re really re-preached from the pulpit. And I, I was like, I, I started thinking thinking of it, I'm like, yeah, I can, I think I can do that. I think I could do that. And there's a lot of, there's so many out there. And so I took on the challenge several years ago and I re-preached a, um, a message that was given by John Winthrop on the, on the ship ride over to the, um, to the, what was the, you know, the Pilgrim's Landing, you know, into, into Plymouth. And um, a few years after that, I ran across this Christmas sermon by R.C. Sproul. And he was always one of my favorite, favorite ministers. I loved, loved, loved listening to R.C. Sproul. And he could teach, he could preach, he could, um, everything about it was so accessible. And I ran across this sermon, and I was listening at 20 around Christmas, shortly before he died, and I believe it was preached in 2015. And it stuck with me um, for, um, for a while, and then came um, the birth of our last child, uh, Jubilee, and it was particularly traumatic. We had just some health issues and stuff that caused a lot of fear, and the enemy came in. And when we were in the hospital, it was it was one of these uh, one of those instances where we were really struggling with anxiety. There was intense, intense level of anxiety, and and I'm going to tell you, you know, when your when your wife feels things that you can't feel you listen and and so I knew there was it was just a really really severe attack and the Lord quickened that sermon back to me into my mind because of Sproul elaborates on the what he calls the negative prohibition in the New Testament that Christ gives and that is fear not and it's spoke to me in that in that moment in that hospital room when our right before Jubilee was born, I 
the Holy Spirit just quickened me to speak that, and I went through the Word, and I found every passage I could find. I found everything that spoke of the Lord giving peace and not being afraid because he had overcome the world. And our Savior was powerful enough to say that because he overcame the world. And that was one of the things, that sermon was one of those things that really got us through that experience, and the Lord blessed us with a healthy child, and and hence we named her Jubilee. Um, and so um, I think it was this year I was I had another, <laughs> another interesting experience in my life that brought on really intense battles with anxiety and and um, panic and things like that. And the Lord brought it right back to me, and and I felt I needed to re-preach that sermon, and. And so I did an adaptation to a little bit of my material in there, but much of what I'm preaching today is from R.C. Sproul and uh, taken directly from a Christmas sermon given on the Lord's Day, and I call it The Birth of Jesus and Our Redemption. And I wanted to give you that background um, and also to give credit give credit where credit was due that this, is, this largely is his message. And uh, I hope it blesses, blesses you today. And I hope, so today's sermon text is, of course, Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 20. And I hope and I want to exhort the congregation. I know it's like sometimes we get around Christmas time and we start, start thinking, it's like, oh, well, we're going through that again. And Sproul always said, he said he never, ever, ever got tired of that passage. He's like, I may have gotten tired preaching from it sometimes. He did it year after year after year. He's like, but I never got tired of, of hearing it, and nor should we. So with that, I'll ask the congregation to please stand for the uh, reading of today's text in Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 20. And uh, do we have that one on the screen? Okay. If not, go ahead and uh, go ahead and follow along. Get a drink here. All right. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. It was the first registration when Quirinius, the governor of Syria and... Um, uh, when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his hometown. And Joseph went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth in Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was, um, he was of the house of lineage, and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. And in that same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloth and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying glory to God in the highest. And on earth peace among, all, among those who, with whom he is pleased. 
When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in the manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child and all who heard it, at, um, heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. So the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. This is the infallible, inerrant word of the, God, uh, word of the Lord this morning. Let it sink deeply into our hearts. Amen. You may be seated. Let me get here. Okay. So I want to set the stage for this sermon a little bit to give a little bit of background and historical the historical context of what we're talking about here when when it comes to the birth of Christ. We have to remember, and Ken Ken has um, uh, preached on this in in subsequent Sundays here coming up to this, but it's important to note there had been a time of silence and there really had been no prophecy in the land since the prophet Malachi. <laughs> And that, which was, since his last prophecy, about four to five hundred years before Christ uh, was born. And so in that time of silence, there were many that the Lord, the Lord had kept in his people that were there who sought to preserve the word and preserve his, the gospel and the temple sacrifices and look ahead towards the day of the Lord. We just don't know a whole lot about how it went in that time. But we know it was a period of long silence. Um, and I will warn you uh, throughout this, if I get emotional, it's pretty, pretty normal. I'm a pretty emotional guy, but this, this message stirs me. And so <laughs> I had a hard time practicing it without breaking down multiple times. So <laughs> bear with me. Um, so Malachi closed his book at the end of the Old Testament with a prophecy of the coming of one like Elijah who would prepare the way of the Lord. And that was in Malachi chapter 4, verse 5, um, the last verse. Of, of that chapter where he said, Behold, I will send you, Elijah the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. And we see, and Ken also spoke on this too, we see um, uh, that the fulfillment of that New Testament prophecy came, or of that Old Testament prophecy came with uh, the birth of John the Baptist as foretold to him by the angel Gabriel. And so when Gabriel met Zechariah in the temple um, that day and had to tell, tell him to fear not as well, he literally quotes from Malachi in Luke chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, where the angel says, and Gabriel told him, and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit of wisdom of the, and uh, of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. This was the signal, if you will, that the fullness of time had come and soon would be the redemption of God's people. Um, as it had been foretold all the way back even into the Garden of Eden in Genesis 3.15, uh, where God cursed the serpent and said, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. 
He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. According to the historical account of Luke, this took place 76 generations before the birth of Christ. So that was prophesied yet even all the way back. Now do we remember, who here remembers? I know we're quick to, to forget and God's people are quick to forget as we know through scripture, but who remembers the meaning of the name Zechariah? Yeah, the Lord has remembered. That's what his name means. And so it was no mistake that that message came to him. And his name even spoke of the faithfulness of the Lord to his promises that the Lord had remembered. And now let us look into the sermon text on the birth of Christ. The first thing we see about Luke's narrative on the birth of Christ is found in the opening words. He begins with the account by saying, and it came to pass. And he goes on to speak of the activity of the emperor of the Roman Empire and of Quirinius, the governor of Syria. These were real people in real places in real history. It does not, he doesn't begin his narrative with once upon a time or long ago and far away because it's no fairy tale. This is sober history announcing the entry into the world of our Savior. And so Luke sets his narrative squarely in the context of real history. And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This story in this narrative is about three kings. One of those kings sits on the throne as the ruler and emperor of the most powerful uh, uh, of the most powerful uh, empire that was on the face of the earth at the time in Rome. The second king sits not on a throne, but is wrapped in swaddling clo- cloths and lying in a manger. This little king is the king of kings. He rules over the king in Rome. Amen. And the third king is the eternal king, the Lord God omnipotent, who reigns from the moment of his work of creation to the moment of his work of the fulfillment of his cosmos. He is the great king who rules over all things. And so the story proximately speaks of an earthly decree that is issued and executed by the emperor in Rome. That emperor issues the decree that all return to their home cities to be registered for the census in order to be taxed by imperial Rome. This decree, however, and this is amazing and speaks to the sovereignty of the Lord, this decree ultimately is done in obedience to a decree that took place much earlier, even in eternity, when God decreed that his son would come into this world to do his work of redemption for his people and that he be born at a specific time in the fullness of time, at a specific place in the village of Bethlehem for a specific mission. That was to save his people from their sins. Caesar Augustus was probably the most celebrated uh, of all the Roman emperors. He was the second in the long list of them. Successor to Julius Caesar, Octavian by name. 
he was a grandnephew, actually, of Julius Caesar. And not only that, he was Julius's favorite. So in 44 BC, when Julius Caesar was assassinated and stabbed to death and fell um, on the floor of the Senate at the foot of the statue of Pompey the Great, they read his last will and testament, and he named Octavian as his principal and chief heir. And then the Senate of Rome uh, named him emperor and gave him the title Caesar Augustus. Augustus meaning the supreme, sublime, or majestic one. This was a title that the Jews shrank from in horror because they believed that only God was worthy of the title August. And the true August one was in the manger because there was no room for Jesus Augustus in the end, the true supreme, sublime, and majestic one. Caesar Augustus had celebrated um, the memory of his great uncle Julius by taking it upon himself to build a temple in his honor, acknowledging the deity, of course, of Julius Caesar. What a foolish mistake that was. We know, again, the only deity we found in the confines of the Roman Empire was in the manger in Bethlehem. But in obedience to the decree of Caesar Augustus, Joseph, in verse 4, left his home of Nazareth in Galilee, and he went up to Judea, to the city of David that is called Bethlehem. He did this because he was an ancestor and a descendant of the line of David, 28 generations removed, in fact. So David was his, about his 28th great-grandfather. <laughs> and he uh, brought his wife with him. Now, Roman law didn't require, it didn't actually require um, that uh, the man brought, bring his wife or family to register for the tax, the tax. And we can speculate as to, you know, why Joseph would subject his wife to such an arduous journey. But again, approximately, the reason is clear. That he knew the time had come for her to deliver, and he did not want her to have to do that without his presence. And remember that Joseph was a just man, as accounted in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 1. And he followed the law and covenants of God, and we can assume that his faithfulness to his wife was his top priority, especially after himself being visited by an angel of the Lord. And being instructed, he was instructed specifically to take Mary as his wife, since he had sought to put her away, to not bring her to shame, in confusion over the matter of the conception of this child. But the angel, again, told him to fear not. And don't fear, do not fear the work of the Holy Spirit. And so he brought her with him. And so the ultimate reason that trumps the proximate one is that it was all, also had been, been decreed from all eternity that the baby would be born in Bethlehem by the prophet Micah. And that had been announced centuries before. During the time, actually, of the prophets uh, Isaiah and Hosea, uh, he was a contemporary, probably six, seven hundred years prior, I believe, and, and so, um, um, while Isaiah had prophesied the, the, the worship text this morning that Ken used in, in uh, Isaiah 9, 1 through 7, Micah also prophesied in a similar time that you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel 
whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Amen. And so it was that the days were fulfilled for her to be delivered, and she brought forth her firstborn son, in verse 7, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. The entrance of Jesus into this world is against the backdrop of humiliation. No place for him to lay his head. In fact, as an adult, he would say he had no place to lay his head, and he never had a place to lay his head that wasn't borrowed from someone else. And so the cloak of shame and humiliation is spread across this baby who's wrapped in these rough, bandage-like strips of cloth and placed in either the niche or the rock that was used as a feeding trough for animals or in a crude cradle of some sort. Humiliation in his entrance into the world. Humiliation in his exit from the world. However, at that very moment when the baby is wrapped in the cloth of humiliation, the Father God is not satisfied that the circumstances of the birth of his son be only in terms of humiliation, but also must be accompanied with exaltation. That that shame must be balanced with glory. Not in a manger. Not in the cave or the stable where they were, but on the outskirts of the village. Out on the, out on the fields where the lowest evaluated people of the land the shepherds were keeping their flocks at night, living outside and being sheltered by crudely built huts while they were overlooking and superintending the flocks that belonged probably not simply to them but to others as well. In fact, as an interesting side note, many scholars and theologians believe that these weren't just ordinary shepherds but because of their proximity to the town of Bethlehem, where other, flock, where other shepherds weren't allowed to raise their sheep. They believe there's um, reason to, re, good reason to believe that these shepherds were actually employed by the, by the Levitical order and that they were actually raising sacrifices for the temple, temple sacrifices, and that's what, mostly what they were doing. It's a pretty interesting side note of significance. So they, were, they would watch these flocks through the night and take turns sleeping and keeping vigil over their sheep, lest they be attacked by wild animals or thieves or rustlers of some sort. And so out there on the plains where the sheep were being watched at night, it was quiet. It probably really was a silent night. And when most of the shepherds were sleeping in that silence, there would only be the occasional punctuation of the silence by the bleeding of a sheep. But that was probably it for the noise. Didn't have the distractions that we have today. Of being hard, it's hard to find a place now where you don't hear the traffic noise and cars going by and sirens. And, but these guys were probably having a pretty silent night. And then suddenly, <laughs> with no prior announcement, 
No warning, no human messenger coming out to shake them awake and tell them to watch out. Because this night was an incredible night and you won't believe what is about to happen. There was none of that. Then out of nowhere, think of that, just out of nowhere in the dark night, out of heaven appeared to whatever shepherds were awake at that moment, an angel from heaven. In verse 9, the angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the angel was accompanied with the glory of the living God. So let's grasp that for a moment, thinking you're sitting there, all that's on your mind is your animals and taking care of them and taking your shift, you know, keeping vigil and watching. And all of a sudden you're account, encountered by a heavenly being that's bathed in the glory of God, and you know it. The glory of God shone round about him, it says. And Sproul uh, notes here, and I love this, where he, he, his favorite translation was the old King James that you hear in the, uh, hear in the uh, Charlie Brown Christmas. He said they were, um, they were sore afraid. <laughs> um, and uh, also here, Sproul notes that throughout the Old Testament, Almost every time there was a theophany, which is an outward manifestation of the invisible God, almost every time we see that accompanied by the presence of the Shekinah. And the Shekinah was the blazing, refulgent, blinding glory of God himself. And when that glory was visible on this planet, people hid their eyes from it, They were overwhelmed by it, and they were driven to their knees in front of it because there was nothing, we have to understand, there is nothing in nature in this realm that we see that can compare to the Shekinah glory of God. But here these shepherds are attending their flocks, taking their naps, and suddenly they're interrupted by an angel of the Lord who's bathed in the Shekinah glory of God Almighty right before their eyes. And we can imagine that uh, amongst them that were asleep, they sure they did not stay asleep. <laughs> they would be aroused from their dogmatic slumber to take part in this greatest of sound and light shows that filled the plains of Bethlehem. And this, this point is where Luke notes that when the Shekinah glory appeared, the shepherds were filled with great fear. It's pretty typical of fallen creatures in the presence of God. This is when he notes where they were sore afraid because it's one thing to be afraid, but it's quite another to be sore afraid. And when you're sore afraid, you're more afraid than anything of anything than you have ever been in your entire life. Who wouldn't be? trembling in fear at the manifestation of the glory of God at that moment. But here, amidst that fear, the angel speaks and utters the negative prohibition that is the most frequently uttered negative prohibition in the New Testament that comes from on high. Fear not. Don't be afraid. 
You know, it seems also in the New Testament record of the life of Jesus that almost every time he came into the presence of, of his disciples, <laughs> instead of saying, peace be with you, or hello, or good morning, you know, or whatever, what's up, he'd have to say, don't be afraid. Almost every time, it's like, how long am I going to be with you? And you guys are scared every time, you know. <laughs> but nothing is more common for fallen creatures. Um than to be terrified in the presence of God. And Sproul illustrated here that every time he heard that negative prohibition, don't be afraid, that he couldn't help think of his days teaching 19th century philosophy and having what he, as he put it, the unenviable task of teaching the work and writings of the existential nihilist Friedrich Nietzsche, who said there is no meaning to life. Everything is an exercise in futility. All there is, is the, at the end of the day, is das nichts, nothingness. And at the same time, how Nietzsche and his biological heroism called for der Ubermensch, the Superman, to demonstrate what he called dialectical courage. He said the Superman is the man who builds his house on the slope of Vesuvius. And he sends his ship into uncharted seas. He's afraid of nothing. He's defiant and challenges the meaningless world in which he lives in the spirit of what Nietzsche called dialectical courage. Dialectical courage. What in the world is dialectical courage? Well, what Nietzsche meant by that was this, dialectical courage is contradictory courage. It's irrational courage. He would say life is meaningless. Be courageous, even though your courage is equally meaningless. That is, he could give no sound reason, none. He could give no sound reason at the end of the day for inviting anyone to be courageous. Anyone to be fearless. You see, uh, Friedrich Nietzsche was smart enough to follow the path of life without a transcendent authority, an ultimate lawgiver, to its logical end. And that logical end of his worldview and the utter despair that came from that reality ultimately drove him insane. His God could not say with authority, that glorious negative prohibition, fear not. His God wasn't powerful enough. And in contrast to Nietzsche's utter despair over the meaningless, meaninglessness of life, we as redeemed believers have a Savior, Jesus Christ, who says to his followers with authority, be of good cheer, amen, fear not, for I have overcome the world. And long before he speaks those words, the angel gives a reason here in verse 10. The angel said, fear not, for behold, he gives a reason. I bring you good news of great joy that will be to all people. Don't be afraid, for there is born to you 
To you despised shepherds a child is born. To you wretched sinner a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God, Everlasting Father and Prince of Peace. And of his government and peace there shall be no end. Amen. That's what our God can say and has the authority to say. Unto you is born this day in the city of David a Soter, a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Don't be afraid because this is the birthday of the one who will save you. This is the day your Savior is born. And not only is he your Savior, but he is Christ the Lord. And the shepherds understood the meaning of the word Christ because it was the New Testament translation for the Old Testament word for Messiah. Today your Savior, your Messiah is born. Today your Lord is born in Bethlehem. After not hearing a word from the prophets, or the Lord rising up a prophet in 500 years, your Messiah is here. And this will be the sign to you Go and see because the sign, it's significant. You're going to find a baby wrapped in sheep cloth. Not on a throne, but in a manger. No sooner had the angel said that than instantly, beside this single messenger from heaven, this angel, perhaps even Gabriel again, and I like to think there had to have been, I don't know how they made that decision in heaven, because... Gabriel was getting to do everything there, and I, I can imagine he probably got to be the one to announce it to the shepherds too. We don't know, but it's fun to think about. But he was surrounded suddenly by the heavenly host in verse 13. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of that army of angels that inhabit heaven and surround the presence of our eternal God. And now, this time it's not Zechariah that's singing the Benedictus. It's not Mary who's singing the Magnificat. It's the angels directly from heaven. The angels who bring a chorus from heaven. In verse 14 saying, Glory, doxa, glory, augustness to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. This was the first singing of the Gloria in Excelsis Deo. That, of course, is where we get our wonderful Christmas carol. One of my favorites. That angels we have heard on high with the refrain of the angel's song, Gloria in Excelsis Deo. You know, I've often noted to people, you know, if you could pick one moment in biblical history that you could go back and, and be a part of, what would it be? You know, I, I've often thought of that. And I've always said that I thought it might have been the crossing of the Red Sea principally because it's that one moment that is most often pointed back to um, in Scripture to remind God's floundering people of the power of their Redeemer. Remember, he would say, you know, who brought you through the, sea, the Red Sea on dry ground? Am I not the God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the hands of Pharaoh? It had to have been an absolutely breathtaking experience. And it also shows the frailty of the sin-ravaged heart of man. 
We are so prone to forget the promises of God. We need a savior. Because we can forget events like walking through the Red Sea. That's how frail we are. But after this study on the nativity and the incarnation of Christ, I did some more thinking. I think I'd rather be on the plains of Bethlehem. With those shepherds to see the heavenly host singing and praising God because they got to experience the crescendo, if you will, of the fulfillment of the prophecies of old that the Messiah had come. The one that had been prophesied from Genesis, the one who brought them through the Red Sea had sent his son to their true deliverance, their eternal deliverance. Not just deliverance from the hand of Pharaoh, but their eternal deliverance. They were the first ones outside of the family of Jesus that got the direct message of the birth of their eternal redemption. Imagine being there to see the angels sing. A moment of supernatural grandeur where eyes are actually opened to see beyond this realm where we just think and see in linear frames of time and space, but to see into that realm where the Spirit of the Lord exists and to have our eyes open, what a wonder that would have been. And we will see again. And so it was, Luke tells us in verse 15, that when the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. Can you imagine that conversation? <laughs> Just leaving, leaving the sheep? I know I would have. Did you see that? Did you hear that? We have to go. We have to see this sign that the angel has just announced. We have to go find our Messiah now. The time had come. Verse 16, they went with haste and they found Mary and Joseph. But beloved, they were not coming to see Mary. And they weren't coming to pay homage to Joseph. They were coming to see the baby that was lying in the manger. And once they had seen him, they made widely known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. They told every single person they knew. They didn't just try to live the good life after that so that people could see them walk the walk, so to speak. They opened their mouths. They did evangelism. And they told everyone what they heard and what they had seen. How could you not when something like that would happen to you? And all who heard it, the word says, wondered at what the shepherds told them. You know, it makes you wonder how long they marveled to after the excitement tends to wear off. And, it, you know, how long the excitement lasted or the duration of their zeal and happiness from their experience, which had to have been a converting experience. It had to have been. You don't spend time in the presence of the Lord in God's Shekinah glory from the throne room himself without a converting experience. Maybe they, every year at Christmas time, they spoke of it to their children when they got to say, I was there that night. 
<laughs> I got to be there that night when the angels sang, you know, maybe they followed Jesus's ministry or his growth or his, uh, as he um, uh, grew up. You never know. We don't know those things. But it's interesting to think about. But not Mary. The word of God says in verse 19, she treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. Everything that she saw, everything that she heard, she pondered it and thought on those things in wonder. Eight days later, when she took the baby to the temple, she and Joseph took the baby to the temple for circumcision, and Simeon held his Messiah and saw the fulfillment of his redemption. And he sang, I love this song, but he said, Now, O Lord, let your servant depart in peace, for mine eyes have seen my salvation. She pondered that. When the boy was 12 years old and confounded the teachers and the doctors of the temple with his just unbelievable understanding and wisdom. You think, Sproul talks about this in a different sermon, but you think about a child. Imagine a 12-year-old who's not encumbered by the ravages of sin and imagine the wisdom and understanding that you could, that, that could have. That was a picture, a foretaste of our promise of eternity, of what heaven will be like how Jesus lived that life. It was a sinless life. And at 12 years old, could put to shame any human being with his understanding and wisdom. He wasn't encumbered by sin. Every night when she tucked her son into bed, she pondered these things until the day that she stood at the foot of a cross. Watched him die. She pondered that. where our sin nailed him to the cross until Sunday morning came. And he arose, not in humility as he had exited the world, not in shame but in glory, in triumph, in exaltation and victory over the grave. Her son had just conquered death and paid for her sins. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all, all they had heard and seen as it had been told to them. That is the lot of the Christian, to tell of what we've heard and seen, to give glory and honor and power and dominion and praise as we join with the angels, singing, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to, to receive the fullness of the glory of God. You see, we as people must celebrate the birth of Christ. That is what Christmas is about. We must celebrate this is our redemption. If we do not have the manger where God became flesh, then we do not have his sinless life 
where he fulfilled the whole law of the covenant of life that we so miserably failed at. And if he didn't live the perfect life, then we don't have the cross where he became sin for us. Bleeding and dying to take the punishment of our transgressions upon himself. Saving us ultimately from the wrath of Almighty God. And if we don't have the cross, then we don't have his resurrection where he ripped the doors off the city of death, conquering the grave, crushing the head of the serpent, as prophesied in Genesis, giving us the hope of eternal life. And my friends, if we don't have the resurrection, then we don't have his ascension, where he ascended into glory. Amen? As the perfect fulfillment of our Messiah, our prophet, our king, our great high priest who tore the temple veil in two, giving us access to the Holy of Holies and who now sits at the right hand of the Father as mediator for his people who are now and forevermore covered in his perfect righteousness. Amen and amen. That, beloved, that is Christmas. That is Christmas. I want to conclude today a, um, a favorite quote of mine. If I can find it here. There we go. I love how this quote uh, sums up the incarnation of Christ. This is a quote by Leo the Great. And we'll finish, we'll wrap up with this. Therefore, the word of God, himself God, the son of God, who in the beginning was with God, through whom all things were made and without whom was nothing made. John 1, 1 through 3. With the purpose of delivering man from eternal death, became man, so bending himself to take on him our humility without decrease in his own majesty, that remaining what he was and assuming what he was not, he might unite the true form of a slave to that form in which he is equal to God the Father and join both natures together by such a compact that the lower should not be swallowed up in its exaltation, nor the higher impaired by its new associate. Without detriment, therefore, to the properties of either substance, which then came together in one person, majesty took on humility, strength, weakness, eternity, mortality, and for paying off of the debt belonging to our condition, inviolable nature was united with possible nature, and true God and true man were combined to form one Lord, so that, as suited the needs of our case, one and the same mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, could both die with the one and rise again with the other. Amen. Let us pray. Oh, Father God, we give you thanks and honor and praise once again for the holy word that you have given to us and the promise of our eternal redemption. 
through Christ Jesus our Lord. We celebrate, and let us celebrate with joy. Let, let this message, Father God, sink into the hearts of we, your people, and carry that joy and that jubilation throughout the year. Let us never, ever grow bored with this narrative. Let us never grow faint in our work to make known what we have heard and what we have seen. We thank you, Lord, for our redemption. We thank you, Lord, for the incarnation of your Son. We thank you for his life, his death, his resurrection and ascension. And in his name do we ask these things. Amen.